All right, so we're in Acts chapter 25. You can open up in your Bibles to Acts 25. Been preaching through here for quite a while. As you know, um, we preach through a book at a time, verse by verse. And I believe this is like our 40th book that we're preaching through. Um, So we've been in here probably a year and a half. Of course, I break it up with um, topical sermons, and then we have other people other men in the congregation or guest speakers also speak. So, But we're all the way up to Acts 25. We only have three chapters after this. I tend to go through all of chapter 25 today. And this chapter continues to reveal how the last several years of Paul's life was a ministry to the magistrates, a mission to the magistrates. He was surrounded by them continually from someone as lowly as a centurion, all the way up to kings and governors that he got to speak to, that he got to influence, that he got to talk to them about righteousness and about Jesus Christ and the gospel. So where we're at right now is we're about to see Paul go before Festus, the new governor who replaced Felix. The title of my sermon is Paul with the Magistrates. Why don't we stand up? We'll have a word of prayer. Father, we rejoice in you and give thanks to you for the opportunity to be here and to learn from your word, to worship you with the saints, to give praise and adoration to you, to petition you in prayer, and to, Lord, observe your table. And God, I just ask that you use it all for good in the hearts and minds of those gathered and use this preaching of your word for good now, powerfully in the heart and mind of each one, I pray. May we live faithful to you with the days that you've given us. Be glorified in the earth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Could be seated. So verse 1 of chapter 25 begins by saying, Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea, to Jerusalem. Remember, Caesarea was the Roman capital for Palestine. And of course, Jerusalem was the city of eminence for the Jews. So he arrives at Caesarea and three days later heads over to Jerusalem. He was quick to get busy. Didn't sit around three days after moving in his stuff. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He wants to meet with the leaders of the Jews there. Remember, the relationship between the Jews and the Romans was fractured due to the bad magisterial leadership of Governor Felix, who has now been removed. He was a man given to bribes, we learned in our last sermon, and brutal tactics. Remember, we know historically that he was replaced by Festus and recalled to Rome because during Paul's incarceration there in Caesarea, hostilities grew between the Greeks and the Jews during this time regarding who had preeminence regarding civil rights. The Greeks thought they should have the upper hand as they had the military support, and the city was supposed to be a Gentile city, the capital for the Roman government there in Palestine. But the Jews thought that they should have the upper hand as they were greater in number and possessed more wealth. Josephus tells us that Felix finally intervened with military retaliation against the Jews, killing many of them, 
taking others prisoner and plundering their wealth. So the Jews send a delegation of prominent Jews off to see the emperor in Rome, Nero himself, and Felix was replaced by Festus and recalled to Rome by Nero. Festus, by the way, turned out to be a good governor, but his tenure was cut short upon his death just two years into his governorship in 62 AD. And sadly, the man who replaced him as governor, Lucius Albinus, historians tell us was a villainous man. I like the word villainous, and you should look that up so you get all the, all the content out of that. He too only ruled two years until 64 AD and was then replaced by an even worse governor named Gessius Florus, who was totally corrupt. I could tell you a lot about that guy. His rule was also only two years, and his evil led to the Jewish war, which began in 66 AD. So he also only ruled two years. The historian Josephus cites Gessius Florus as the primary cause of the Jewish war. His rule was that wicked, that corrupt, which of course ended with the destruction. The war ended with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, as was foretold by Christ himself. So here in verse 1, we see Governor Festus quick to get to work and meet with the Jewish leaders as there is bad blood between the Jews and the Romans. The relationship is in a fractured state. And notice it says he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea when Caesarea is actually north of Jerusalem. And why is that? Why doesn't it say he went down to Jerusalem since Caesarea is north of Jerusalem? You better get this this time because I've only brought this up four or five times as we've gone through the book of Acts. Anybody know why it says they went up to Jerusalem when they were actually headed south going down? Nope, not because of the elevation. Because you always go up to Jerusalem. Thank you. The Jews view Jerusalem as the preeminent city. Whatever direction you're headed geographically, you're always going up to Jerusalem. And so that's why it says that there. It isn't because the Bible has some kind of error there or something like that. Verses 2 through 5 says, Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, and he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. This would be the second assassination attempt they've put together to try to get Paul. Verse 4 says, But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault with him. So here we see the Jews still want to assassinate Paul. Yet another ruse employing the Roman magistrates in order to try and kill him, just like the first one. But notice Governor Festus in his response says that Paul's going to be kept at Caesarea and that he's going there shortly himself and if you guys want to accuse him, you come over there and then we'll determine whether he's guilty or not. No doubt Festus had been prepped for his position as governor and was aware of Paul's situation. No doubt about that. So he does not take the bait to bring Paul down. 
obviously had read the report of Lysias Claudius, remember, the commander, and what had happened in the first assassination attempt. And notice the end of verse 5, how that Festus rightly views Paul as innocent until proven guilty. He says, you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. Innocent till proven guilty. Verse 6 says, And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. So Festus spends ten days in Jerusalem, now no doubt doing business and socializing, you know how that all works. You have some cheese and crumpets and hang out and lounge around on your cushions, do all that fine stuff, and at the same time you're doing business. Um, It's still that way to today. Establishing relationships, feeling each other out, all that kind of stuff was going on for 10 days between Festus and the Jewish leaders. And the first thing on his plate when he returns to Caesarea is Paul. Verse 7 says, When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Apparently, the Jews had taken Governor Festus up on his offer in verse 5 to come down with him and traveled with him back to Caesarea. They wanted to get Paul. He's a high priority to them. They made their, quote-unquote, many serious complaints, Luke says, against him, but they could not prove them, it says, at the end of the verse. And this is how dishonest, wicked men always are. They always try to accuse people of something they haven't done. And I asked in the last sermon out of Acts, Acts 24, I asked, have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? Ever been maligned, misrepresented? And I shared a couple of stories from my own life Um, including stories where I was looking at 20 years in prison based all on a lie for defending the pre-born. And again, we see this usual thing from dishonest, wicked men. This past Tuesday, the city of Brookfield decided that they wanted to pass a mandated mask law for the whole city. They didn't put it on the agenda till Monday night because they didn't want any time for any opposition to organize. Yet, nevertheless, even though we didn't find out till Tuesday morning, we had about 200 people rally there. And you were allowed to speak for two minutes. I gave a two-and-a-half-minute speech. It was a four-and-a-half-hour meeting. Not one person testified in favor of the masking ordinance. Everyone testified against it. Everyone who was there was opposed to it, and it was defeated 10 to 4. So the wicked men, and they were on the council, and there was the mayor. The mayor is wicked, and a number of the councilmen there in the city are wicked, and they're little lapdogs for a media, which has long been wicked, dishonest, and very leftist in their thinking, decided to attack me the next day and totally misrepresent what I said and make it into a different issue than it really was of why we were there and what I said. And what I simply said, you only had two and a half minutes, was I pointed out what William Pitt, the noted British statesman, said. He said, necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. 
It is the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves. And then I spent a little bit of time talking about how this whole masking and COVID stuff has all been built on a mountain of lies. I was very brief in that, and then I went to simply say this to them. I said, understand, tyranny is built plank by plank. History teaches us that. And then I brought up the example of the Jews. Everyone notes that. Everyone knows what happened there. And I said, understand the Jews weren't just called to the railroad station one day to jump on the boxcars and go off to the death camps. It started with a thousand little infringements on their liberties prior to that. And I said, the first being they couldn't sit on public park benches. And they accommodated themselves to that, kind of like they do with people in our day do with masking. And then it was they couldn't go to the beaches. Then they couldn't go to the cinemas. Then they couldn't go and run for public. And it just continued to increase. And they accommodated themselves all along the way till they ended up on the boxcars. And I said, and that is why it's important that we stand against any infringement of our liberty which men fought, bled, and died for us to have. We have no right to glibly give up what they established for us. And yes, and the crowd cheered and roared and clapped just like you're doing here. And they even tried to demonize them for that. So when you see the news article, and by the way, I will post it here once I isolate my two and a half minute speech, I'm going to have that video so you can see the speech yourself and then see the news story they made. And you can see how the media edits, how they splice things to create a misrepresentation and an outright lie of what you said and what your point was. So here I was making a powerful point about how tyranny functions and builds, and they made it into something completely different through their editing. And their goal, of course, is to demonize and marginalize. And they like to pick people like myself to do that because then they know that a lot of people will feel fearful. They don't want to be that guy who people are talking against. And so they'll shut up. And that's the dumbest thing you can do is shut up. That is the biggest aider and a better of tyranny on the planet is silence. It allows wicked men to accomplish their purposes in the earth. So in the news media, they made this little, you know, it's like a total fiction. It's like a drama. It's not even real. Understand that. And what I've learned over the years is people say, I don't believe the liberal media. And what I've learned is, no, they really do. <laughs> you know, it's like, they really do. So they were like going crazy saying, a pastor is under fire. <laughs> and I looked at my wife and I said, you know what, Clara? I don't feel like I'm under fire. <laughs> and then they had some group on there demanding that I recant what I said. And I told my wife, I said, they can repent. I will not recant. There's nothing to recant of. And when I post this on this sermon where you can see what I said and what the media made it into, it will be a great teaching tool for you to see how they operate. They have no honesty to them. 
They're despicable people. You'll see the little scrub of a councilman who was the worst out of all of them on there acting as a lapdog for the leftist media, attacking what I said. So anyway, this comes with Christianity. You're going to be misrepresented. You're not going to be liked by everyone. And I know that's the paramount objective of most churchmen is to be liked. They all want to be liked. Listen, you're the ambassadors of his word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, which is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, which cuts to the very marrow. Do you think everyone's going to like you when that's your mission and duty in the earth to make that known to men? Grow up. So the churchmen are despicable. And even now that John MacArthur has decided to open his church, churchmen are beginning to attack him. It's it's a crazy world we're living in right now. Hearts are being revealed. A sifting in the body of Christ is taking place. And it's huge. Evil is afoot in our nation. People know it. And most, unfortunately, Go along to get along. And that is the dumbest thing you can do. You must stand up against it. You must defy it. You must denounce it and expose it. I encourage you to do exactly that. So when you're a Christian, these things happen. This is the Apostle Paul being lied about. Remember Jesus was lied about? (laughs) You know, it comes with the territory. You just continue on faithful to Jesus. Amen? Just continue faithful. Don't allow it to take you off course or to cower in the corner. So it says in verse 8, Paul answered for himself. And as I mentioned in my last sermon, Paul defended himself. So it says, While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. And that's all you can do is say, what they're accusing me of is a lie. There were no video cameras back in Paul's day, right? Like I get to put up my little thing and show, this is what I said, look what they made it into. Paul couldn't do that. So he did what he needed to do, what he only could do. He said, it's a lie. It's not true. What they're accusing me of is absolutely false. Verse 9 says, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Festus wants to do the Jews a favor. Understand this. Listen to me now. The magistrates always want to be in the good graces of those who are deemed most influential. The magistrates always want to be in the good graces of those who are deemed most influential. He is seen by the Jews as doing their bidding by asking Paul this question. He knew it would ingratiate him. He'd be ingratiating himself to them by asking Paul this. Though one would have to highly doubt he thought Paul would do it. And Paul did not. Look at verses 10 and 11 how Paul responds to this question. He says, So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong. 
as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. Amen. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar, Paul says. Paul was no doubt concerned Festus would send him to Jerusalem, so he draws his final trump card as a Roman citizen here. He appeals to Caesar. This was a legal right of Roman citizens, and you understand from previous sermons there were few Roman citizens, but Paul happened to be one of them at that time. This appeal was known in the Latin as provocatio ad Caesareum. I never took Greek, so I'm pardon me, I never took Latin. So like if you know how to pronounce that, I'll show it to you later and you can tell me, boy, that was awful, Pastor Matt. <laughs> so I don't care. <laughs> it's like that's what it looks like to me. Provocatio ad Caesarem. <laughs> Whatever. It simply means appeal to the emperor. It could be employed in order to remove yourself from the violent coercion or capital trial, which he was being accused of, was a capital offense, what Paul was being accused of. You could remove yourself from trial by a governor and appeal directly to the emperor. You had to meet certain guidelines for it to work. And this case regarding Paul did meet those guidelines. And the biggest thing of all is this was providential. This was providential that Paul made his appeal directly to Caesar because it would set in motion Paul's known by the Holy Spirit and affirmed by our Lord in Acts 23, Acts 23, verse 11, mission to Rome and to her magistrates. God wanted Paul to go to Rome in order to testify to the people of Rome there in Rome and to her magistrates to speak to the magistrates and the people there about our Lord and his rule and his salvation. Verse 12 goes on and it says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. So Festus confers with his council, his advisors, and decides to accept the appeal of Paul to Caesar as it fit the proper guidelines for such an appeal. And this was all good to Festus politically because he had already tried to do the bidding of the Jews by asking Paul that question. So they already thought better of him and now he's able to get rid of his problem named Paul. So Festus probably went back to his room, his chambers after his over, thinking, I can't get any better than this. (laughs) I've ingratiated myself to the Jews and I got rid of Paul. Glory. (laughs) Crazy. Verse 13 goes on and it says, And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Now, Agrippa would play an important role for Governor Festus. Agrippa came to greet Festus as it was customary for all dignitaries to come and greet such a noted new official. Though Agrippa was a king, Festus wielded far more power as a governor of Rome than Agrippa did as the king of this little kingdom to the north of where they were. The important role that Festus was hoping Agrippa would help him with was, listen to me now, what to write to Caesar about Paul. What to write to Caesar about Paul, because he's like, 
it has to do with their religion. They're arguing about something I really don't know about. And verses 24 through 27 make that clear that Agrippa would help Festus with that because when they gather for this big pomp and circumstance gathering, it says, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, and then skip down to verse 26. He says, I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him, talking about Paul. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Okay? So notice how this all plays out. Let's all read together verses 14 through 22. It says, when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. So, during this first thing, even though Luke doesn't mention it, you remember we've talked about these, these are presses that Luke is doing. He doesn't give every detail when the talk that's going back and forth with people. He just makes a few key points. He didn't mention all this, that Paul had talked about Jesus, how he died and was resurrected, but he apparently did because here is Festus bringing it up. So while he's instructing making a defense for himself and instructing the magistrate in righteousness, he also is presenting or bringing in the gospel to him. But Festus is like, I don't know about all that stuff, who this Jesus was, how he died, or why Paul's saying he's alive. Verse 20, and because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. He really wanted to take him there so he could win the favor of the Jews. Remember what Luke had said earlier in our text? He wanted to do them a favor by taking Paul to Jerusalem to be tried there. And you know how it is when we do things. There's our primary intent and then there's our secondary intent and even our third or quaduary intent, right? We have different intents. So there's no doubt in my mind that that was part of what he wanted to do, is what he says here. I was uncertain of such questions. I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. Because he just simply didn't understand what all they were talking about. But his primary intent was to get the favor of the Jews, as Luke has already pointed out. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, talking about Caesar, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. 
So this is how it's all playing out. And in verse 23, it says, So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. So think of this scene. You have the magistrates. You have the movers and shakers in the town gathering to hear Paul. And I simply say this to you. When we faithfully serve Christ in the earth, things this odd happen to us. When we faithfully serve Christ in the earth, things this odd happen to us. You see God's providence. Though it looks bad, you're under arrest. You're being tried for a death sentence crime. That's the accusation being brought against you. God creates this opportunity where you can present his law, word, and gospel to the magistrates and the elite of the community. Pretty awesome. An opportunity to instruct men in righteousness and point them to Jesus. Now, the Romans were well known for their pomp and circumstance. They were all decked out in their attire of station and office. Probably was a sight to behold. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Agrippa and Bernice. You may think them to be husband and wife. How many think Agrippa and Bernice were husband and wife? I mean, wouldn't that normally be your mindset? They were actually brother and sister. Their relationship was incestuous. So well known was their incestuous relationship throughout the area and in Roman history that Bernice finally had to marry in order to quell the to quell all the talk going around. And she married King Polemo of Cilicia in 63 AD. In 66 AD, when everything began to come apart in the nation, she returned to her brother, Agrippa. She later became the mistress of Roman general Titus. Titus was the one who destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He was the grandson of Herod Aristobulus, who Jesus was taken before. So the Herod that Jesus was taken before, this guy is the grandson of that Herod. And now Paul is before Herod. He was the last of the Herodian dynasty. Agrippa was the last. As he did not marry and have children. He is like most Americans today. They're so drunk on their sexual immorality and licentiousness, they have no interest in building a family. They have no interest in living right in the sight of God as decent men and women. So they don't have children, or they have their one, or maybe if they're really crazy, they'll have two. And they're all committing familial suicide in America and throughout the West. And that's always been that way with those who have power and wealth. They abhor children. They view them as an evil necessity often. Wealth and ease produces within people the desire to not have children. And so you can follow the statistics, the demographics, and see what's happened to America. We don't even replace ourselves anymore. It takes 2.1 children per couple in order just to replace yourself, the population to replace itself, the last five years in America, Americans have been below that. Last time it was recorded, not last year, the year before, 1.78 per couple. 
Many European nations, 1.24, 1.31, they are committing familial suicide because they abhor the created order of God to marry, have children, establish a home because they want one thing, wealth and ease. And it is the destruction of every nation, if you read history, the desire for wealth and ease, the drunken imbibement upon wealth and ease. And our nation is no different. It is destroying itself. Because it's more important to them to sit on their butts and relax and live in their wealth than it is to raise a family, to learn self-sacrifice, to learn how to serve others, to build a home, to teach your sons to be men and your daughters to be women and what that all entails. So that was the end of the Herods. Thanks be to God. Wicked dogs that they were. And so here we see in these final verses Luke setting up what would be Paul's fifth and final defense which is in chapter 26 and which we'll look at next time. Understand Since this began, Paul has given a defense to the people. Remember on the staircase? He's given a defense before the Sanhedrin and the Roman commander, Lysias Claudius. He's given a defense before Governor Felix. He's given a defense before Governor Festus. And now, number five, he's going to give a defense before King Agrippa. And this is the longest of the five defenses recorded by Luke. And to set it all up, Luke simply says, verse 24, And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man with whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. And we will see, though all the pomp and circumstance created for this gathering was all mustered to show the eminence of Rome and the inferiority of this little Jewish man named Paul, the Lord turns it all on its head. We will see that when we go through this next week. And so I close by saying to you again, when we faithfully serve Christ in the earth, odd things like this happen. Odd things like this happen. May Christ be praised. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer. Father, I ask and pray that we would be faithful to you in the earth, that our lives would count for you in the earth. Lord, we rejoice in you and thank you for your goodness to us, that you've preserved your scriptures so we know your ways and your thoughts. And as your servants, as your disciples, as those who were deserving of death, 
and you died in our stead, who now live our lives in service to you, who died in our stead. May we live in service to you. May we be your faithful servants in the earth. May our lives count with the days you've given us. May we not squander our time here on this planet. Lord, may we live our lives to glorify you and to enjoy you. Lord, we give thanks and praise to you for your goodness to us. May each one here spend time with their family. Strengthen each one in their relationship with you, O God. Strengthen each couple in their relationship as husband and wife, each home, each family. Strengthen. May each man be faithful to you and to open your word to his wife and to his children. May they sit as a family and discuss the things of you. May they conduct family worship together regularly in their home. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us that while our lives were nothing, that while we were rebels against you, you loved us. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, you convicted us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we tasted your love for us, O God. And you radically transformed us, regenerated us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Translate us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You didn't just save us from something, Father, like our sins and evil and wrongdoings, but you also saved us for something, namely to bring glory to your name, to faithfully serve you in the earth, to make you known to men, to open our mouths and speak. May you be glorified in the earth, O Lord, and may we be faithful to you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May Christ be praised.